And I will read from verse 21 down to 28. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Immediately, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Quite an account. The title of the message this morning is The Authority of Christ. Pretty simple subject. It's a subject you could teach to the smallest child that can communicate. Jesus is the boss. My kids have literally come home from Sunday school with a coloring page with those words at the very top. Very simple truth to communicate. But in this passage, we're going to dive into what that actually means and what impact it should have on our lives. The, the fact of the matter is that the world is filled with opinions. Those of you who have been to university or college would acknowledge that. You go from one class to the next, all your different teachers, all your different professors, they all, come, they all have their own perspective. They all have their own opinions about what will lead to human flourishing, what will lead to your personal happiness. We debate. Much of our public discourse has to do with debating various issues. We debate over politics. We debate over the validity of various surveys, studies, and experiments. Uh, the most active conversation now is, you know, what will lead to utopia? What set of financial policies, laws, human authority structures will lead to the ultimate man-made utopia. Much of the, the current debates are fitting into that. But for anyone searching for truth, for anyone searching for something to really build upon and rest upon and have any kind of certainty, it's quite frustrating, wouldn't you say? It's quite frustrating to go from teacher to professor to public pundit to news anchor to influencers and all their statements are just, I think, I feel, surveys indicate, it seems, perhaps. That's how we talk. Our modern world is adrift, I would say, in an ocean of speculation and opinion. Truth, the idea of absolute truth, is something our ancient ancestors believed in. 
But modern man doesn't believe in truth. Everything is relative. What works for you is good. And if you ask if it's true, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's true because we can't know. Most tragic of, of all, we even debate over the destiny of the soul. The all-consuming question we all grow up asking is just glibly and casually dismissed. The moment a young child realizes, maybe the first time he or she attends a funeral, hears about a relative passing away, there's an immediate concern, which is natural. What happens to me? What comes after this life? And what does the world say? What, what do people say? Well, we, we don't know for sure. Some say we're just dust. Others say we're caught in some sort of endless cosmic spiritual cycle. Uh, others don't know and say, since it's unknowable, the only thing I can do is live like an animal and try to pursue whatever pleasure I can get in this life. And so as long as I don't hurt people, my goal in life is to have a good time. That's the counsel you would get and what most, the counsel most of us have gotten outside the church. But who can settle the ultimate questions? Who can give you a definitive answer to the great questions of human experience? The passage before us here has a clear answer, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ speaks, he's not quoting anybody. He's speaking to you with his own inherent authority. So this text is asserting that. It's asserting that Christ possesses absolute authority over two things, all human teachers, and second, over all powers. And as such, we must obey his word with fear and trembling. So let's consider, first of all, that Jesus has authority over all human teachers. Look at verse 21 and 22. It says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. A little bit of context here. So it says they went, it says they went. So who is they? Well, if we back up, remember from last week, Jesus has just called Andrew and Peter, Simon Peter, and James and John to be his disciples. He met them as they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee and walked up to them, said, quit your job. You're now in full-time training for apostolic ministry. And they dropped everything and followed him. So this little band now is traveling together and they'll remain as a group for the rest of Jesus's public ministry. They go into Capernaum. Capernaum is the home base of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. So we can divide Jesus's ministry roughly into his Galilean ministry and his Judean ministry. Uh, Capernaum would have been his home base. So it's where Peter lived and Jesus would have lived with him and stayed with him. This was a, an important and prosperous town on the, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there was a tax office there. Uh, there was a centurion there. There was a synagogue there, a quite wealthy one. And other passages seem to indicate that the, the people that lived here were quite proud that they lived in Capernaum. It was, a, it was a nice place to live. 
And so here's where Jesus goes to. He goes to the synagogue. The synagogue. The synagogue was the most important institution in Jewish communities. It's a bit different than a, a church. So of course, this is before the birth of the church, but it would have been a much more life, it would have been much more important to the average person's life. Uh, it was a big deal to be cast out of the synagogue. We see that that was uh, a threat from the Pharisees. They were threatening to remove anyone from the synagogue that confessed Jesus to be the Christ. But the synagogue was the central institution uh, it, it was not just a place where you would hear Bible lessons. Of course, they had services sort of like this where there was public prayer, public reading of scripture, maybe a sermon if there was a teacher there. But it was also where crimes were punished. So if you stole something, you might be brought to the synagogue and beaten in the synagogue as your judicial punishment. Uh, all of life flowed from and focused on the synagogue. It was very important to the Jewish people and still is to those today. Uh, the major focus of their meetings when they met on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, right? Sabbath is Saturday, uh, to read the scripture and to pray. There would have been a man who governed the affairs of the synagogue and, and ordered the services, made sure everything went according to plan, but it was open to any layman. So anyone could participate in the service. And that's why Jesus, we see him preaching and teaching and even reading scripture in the synagogue. He was a well-known teacher. Uh, at the, he quickly became a recognized authority to some extent in the law and in the Old Testament, even though he was not classically educated and he did not fit into the system of the scribes and Pharisees. He was still welcome to teach. Uh, and he was teaching, obviously, in the synagogue. It says the word teach occurs four times in this passage. So as you're doing your own Bible study, just a, an important thing to look for is words that are, rep are repeated in the passage. And if there's a word that's repeated four times in a few verses, that means this is kind of an important word. So teaching, we all know what teaching is, but well, that shows us that Jesus, he, he focused on public teaching. That was the major focus of his ministry. He had individual conversations, he did healing, but the major focus of his ministry was public teaching. And so here's the scene. Verse 22 says they were astonished. <laughs> they were astonished. So we're, we have not yet covered the miracle. This is before the miracle, before he cast out the unclean spirit. But they're already astonished. Why is that? Well, Mark tells us, he says, for, for he was teaching them as one having authority. He was just speaking directly. He didn't have his huge long list of rabbis behind him. That's how the scribes taught. The scribes, uh, the word actually comes from the word men of the book or men who count, keep records. Uh, if they existed today, we may call them scripture men. That's what the word implies. They were, these were men of the scripture, men of the Torah, men of scribal tradition. They were not just teachers, they were the scholars. So if you had a question, even on a civil case, maybe there's a, a question over property or divorce or something like that, who would you go to as the authority? It would have been a, a scribe. 
he would be the one that was the expert in the law of Moses, which was the, the government, governing document of the culture. He would have been able to answer all your tough questions, and he would be able to issue a binding verdict in your specific case because of his expansive knowledge, not only of the Torah, but of all the tradition that they had handed down through the generations. Listen to just a brief example of this in something called the Mishnah. So this is from around 200 AD. It was written, to be fair, a couple hundred years after Christ, after the account we're reading, but uh, most, most people believe that it's a fair, to a large extent, it's a fair representation of how they taught and what the scribes would have sounded like. Listen to, to this. Said Nahum the scribe, I have received the following ruling from R. Miyasha, who received it from his father, who received it from the Pairs, who received it from the prophets, who received the law given to Moses on Sinai regarding one who sows his field with two types of wheat. So the question is, you know, it's in a, a tractate, it's called, it's in a book, a part of their tradition about different agricultural issues. And there is some question about, oh, when the, the Old Testament says this about how I'm not supposed to mix different grains together, how does this apply to a certain situation? Well, the scribe would say, ah, I know, because it hath been handed down to me from my father and from his father and da 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 da, all the way back to Moses. And so they had this huge tradition. It was not just scripture. It was not sola scriptura. It was not the Bible only, like we do it here. Uh, yeah, we start with the Bible, but then we have built upon the Bible all these layers to help us apply the Bible to every sphere of life. Their goal was to fill in the gaps of the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament law just gave these principles and only a few commands about different situations, that bothered them. They didn't want to just have principles. They wanted to turn the principles into hundreds and hundreds of additional laws. And that is what they spent all their time doing. And so, okay, imagine yourself in Capernaum before Christ came on the scene and you were a God-fearing person, you wanted to learn about the Bible, you wanted to know God, you would have gone to the synagogue and you might, you might have walked into a sermon on how to tithe a bush of mint or dill or cumin. Christ even says that when he's excoriating the Pharisees in Matthew 23. In other words, you would, have, you would have been treated to a, hell, uh, a large dose of minutia, of trivia, of meandering arguments, of quoting traditions of people you've never heard of, who's Armiyasha. I can't read that in the Bible. Well, just trust me, because I'm a scribe, a son of a scribe, who was the son of a scribe, and etc. Why did they do this? Why, why did they teach this way? Why didn't they teach just the Bible? Why didn't they just address the, the great themes that God wants us to address? Hear what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 5. Addressing them, the scribes and Pharisees, he said, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by men. 
So according to Christ, they taught this way because scripture, it was not God's word to them. Well, they would, of course, they would have said that. No, scripture was just a stage. It was just a stage for them to stand on to display their immense intellect and genius and creativity and mastery of tradition. This is because the carnal mind, the unconverted mind, loves and prefers controversy and speculation. We prefer that. There are many people whose conscience drives them to scripture, like the, like the scribes and the Pharisees. They would have said they loved the Bible. They spent their whole life learning the Bible. That was their job. And yet, they played games with it. When they actually came to the text and the plain meaning of the text, how it confronted them in their sin and called them to repentance, they couldn't bear to just deal plainly with the words on the page. No, so what did they do? They took all the laws and they split them apart into thousands of other laws, created their own traditions that were even more regarded as more binding and important than the scripture itself. And we still have religions like that today that do that. The Roman Catholic Church has built an immense structure of tradition upon scripture to such a degree that it contradicts scripture at every point. Scripture condemns this, obviously, this way of dealing with the word of God. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He told him, do not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. For some, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. So a scribe who would have been teaching in the synagogue here, God, the words God would use to describe that would be a fruitless discussion, speculation. Nothing, nothing good can come out of that said men want to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Have you ever heard this? Have you ever seen any videos online where it's, oh, we, it's the, the story behind the Gospels? You know, the story behind the angels in Genesis and it's aliens and who knows what else. This is foolishness, utter foolishness. And it's a result of a, an unwillingness to just hear God and deal honestly with what God has revealed. And any church, just like any, any synagogue, can devolve into this. Uh, the synagogue did not begin as a heretical institution with all sorts of false teaching. It grew into, into that as a result of this carnal attachment to speculation from these men. And men, there are many preachers like this today who do this. Go on the surface, it seems good. There's, there's Bible everywhere. There's Bible verses being tossed out there and quoted. But the, but the major emphasis of the man's message or his book or his show, it's not really on the text. It's the Bible has become for him a self-help manual to help you live a blessed life. Well, what about sin? Oh no, that's... That's not important. God wouldn't want you to feel bad about your sin. They would fall under the same condemnation as the scribes. So the crowd was astonished at his teaching because he was not teaching like this. 
The word astonished means to strike out of one's senses. It means to be shocked or stunned. To, he to hear someone just speak normally to them was stunning. You're just going to talk to us. You're just going to explain uh, what we need to do to know God. You're just going to address the major questions of life with plain language. Yeah, they would not have heard that in their synagogue. The word authority, I mean, we all know what that means instinctively, but uh, just so we want, to, we want to focus on that word a bit, when we say authority, we're talking about the right to order, control, and direct. We're talking about someone having freedom to impose his will on someone else. Uh, moral and legal entitlement. Is this popular today? Authority. Do we like authority? We do not like authority. We reserve the right to rebel against anyone. If we don't like it, it at the end of the day, it's our decision. And the scribes, as people that love the applause of men, I mean, do you think they would have been bold preachers? No. I mean, they want to curry favor with everyone. Absolutely everyone. And so they were not that way. Jesus, however, taught with authority. And if we remember what he was teaching, so Mark doesn't tell us what he was teaching on this occasion, but that's why we spent three weeks in the passage, right, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, that summarizes what Jesus was preaching as he went through all the synagogues and different places. So he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, we need to repent and believe immediately. So when he said those words, he presented it as a command. When he called the disciples, follow me, he didn't ask them. He didn't have a conversation with them. He said, follow me, and they followed him immediately. He quoted nobody. He quoted no surveys, no studies, no branch of philosophy. And it's the same today. The Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to command you how to live. He, he does, he's not in the business of giving tips for how to live a better life. He's not sharing his thoughts with you or his heart. I mean, in a sense, yes. But when we read commands in scripture, we're reading the words of Christ and he speaks with divine authority to your conscience. And so the question is, not just do you understand that, that Jesus is the boss and he has authority, but is that how you're living your life? Have you built your life and beliefs on the rock of Christ's authority? Or do you make decisions about your beliefs and how you live based on your experience? Well, I tried that, it didn't work out, so I do this now. Or on your desires. Why, well, I just feel like. Or your intuition. God seems to be laying it on my heart that all these need to be placed under the authority of Christ. Just the plain words that we read in Scripture. Experience, desire, intuition, 
None of these things necessarily bad, but when it becomes your standard of truth, it leads to self-destruction and tragedy. When you make decisions on your desires, how does that play out? Is that working in America right now? Or your intuition. When you develop your own religious beliefs based on your intuition, does that work? Do you end up with a coherent system that really harmonizes with reality or the Bible? No. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's how Christ teaches. Do you hear, but then also, are you doing them? So we've seen, first of all, that Christ has authority over all teachers. He teaches as no one else teaches. He doesn't have to quote anybody. He doesn't have to meet any standard that you set for him to, to make his authority valid. He doesn't have to prove anything to you. He can simply speak, and we read his words in scripture today, and they stand with their own self-attesting authority, the ultimate standard by which every other standard is judged. Second of all, we see that Christ has authority over all powers. So the more interesting, I would say, of the, the two, overall teachers first, but we also see that he has real authority over all created things, even spiritual beings. And so what do I mean by powers? Well, in this passage, it clearly says that there is a spirit, an unclean spirit, This is not a popular way, well, it's, it's changing, I think. I would have, several decades ago, I think it was less common, but I think people are getting more spiritual now, not in good ways, but the, the occult is on the rise again. Uh, it's not rare to meet even someone that would self-identify as a witch. We even had a coworker a few jobs ago that introduced herself to our company as a witch. Talked about the moon and all that, so it is, popular in some circles, but uh, yeah, most people are a little wary of this. It sounds like it's hearkening back to the Middle Ages when people were superstitious and they thought that they could cure disease with leeches and, and all that sort of thing, and they attributed disease to evil spirits. But for anyone that takes the Bible seriously, which we do, that's our fundamental commitment, we want a, our worldview to be shaped by absolute truth, and so we we do that through the Bible. So for those of us that take the Bible seriously, it clearly says that there is a unclean spirit uh, in this man, a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. What does that mean? Well, a spirit uh, is a synonym for a demon. So other passages draw that connection that uh, an unclean spirit is a synonym for a demon, just another way of referring to that. The word unclean refers to that which is morally polluted and opposite to holiness. So in the Old Testament, uh, for those of you that have, have read or studied the Old Testament, you know God had all, all sorts of food laws for his people. They couldn't eat various animals. Uh, if they, they touched a dead body, they would have been in a state of uncleanness for a certain period of time until they removed that through various rituals. And he did that in order to teach them the lesson about the need for moral cleansing. So the Old Testament, it's about types and shadows, the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs. They were never uh, 
efficacious in themselves, but they taught an important lesson to the people. And this idea of uncleanness, very prominent in the Jewish thought and culture, very concerning. We don't eat with Gentiles. We don't want to be unclean. We don't eat eat certain foods. Uh, We don't, we're very careful with how we approach God. And if you were to enter into the worship, into into the, the temple worship in a state of uncleanness, the law of Moses actually describes that as a capital punishment. It's a capital offense, very serious. So that which is unclean is that which is incompatible with holiness. Uh, The spirit here, it's not just a spirit, but he's actually taken possession of this man. Uh, The demons are Satan's associates, and the Bible teaches they can actually enter into people and invade their personality and to assume control of them to an extent that that person, the, the personality of that person is completely under the control of the evil spirit. This man was also in the synagogue. Do you think there's anyone that ever comes to church that may be possessed? Do you think that ever happens? Um, just in passing, the Christians also often wonder if this could happen to me. One text I would just give you quickly would be James 4, verse 7. So the Bible teaches a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. It teaches the opposite. Uh, when we draw near to God in salvation, that is, in effect, resi- a, a resistance of the devil. And James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So for us who are believers, we, we don't have to fear that, okay? For those of you that may be troubled by that. But nonetheless, demonic possession is very real. It is a reality. Uh, let's look at the conflict. So this, this demon-possessed man just didn't say anything before Jesus showed up. I mean, it doesn't say that he was running around screaming all over town and people thought he was insane. But something about the Lord Jesus Christ really troubled this unclean spirit. And what did he do? He cried out, it says. The word cried out, it's it's a panicked scream. It's a cry of terror. Uh, If the disciples, when they thought they were seeing a ghost on the Sea of Galilee, when it was just the Lord walking to them, uh, it says they cried out. So the same word. So it's, it's the word, it's what you would do if you saw or you thought you saw some sort of ghost. The demon is so afraid of Jesus that he blows his cover and just cries out in the middle of the service. So imagine that Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's preaching of repentance and faith in the kingdom of God, uh, preaching the gospel to the people there. And all of a sudden, this man jumps up and starts screaming. And what does he say? What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? What do we have to do with you? We. So it says there's an unclean spirit but he's using the plural to indicate that this demon is aware that Christ has come as the opponent, not just of him, but all the demonic forces that were there at the time, implying that 
the demonic forces, the spiritual forces of evil, were very active in that time. And we're, it's fair to assume that they are still active in our time, even though we cannot see evidence of that directly. But what does he, he say? He says, have you come to destroy us? Quite a thing to say to Jesus. He recognizes Jesus as the destroyer. That's what the, Jesus, that's what the demons think of Christ. When they saw him, they cry out in panic and acknowledge him as the destroyer. Let's turn briefly to Revelation 19 to see what the demon is talking about. The demons and Satan know more theology probably than we'll ever know. They hate it, but they are not stupid. They have lived for a very long time since the creation of, world, of the world, we can assume. They've read Revelation. They've read the Bible. They are not ignorant about God's plan of salvation and what the future holds for them. And so we see in Revelation 19, verse 20, what the demon is thinking about when he says this. Look at verse 20. So Jesus has is just now come in Revelation. This is of an event in the future. This is a prophecy. It says, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So we see Jesus here throwing the Antichrist into hell, a place of fire and brimstone. People say, oh, I don't like fire and brimstone. That's not my thing. Well, then the Bible's not your thing. Fire and brimstone is all over the Bible. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So Jesus is here coming, throwing the Antichrist into hell, and then with one word slaughtering his entire army, resulting in a complete bloodbath and a, a, a complete decisive victory for him. Look at verse three in the next chapter, 20 verse three. It says, he threw him into the abyss. So he threw the devil into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So Jesus will throw Satan into the abyss for a thousand years while he reigns. And then one final verse here, verse 10, it says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's quite a picture of Christ. I mean, is that a prominent feature of Christ in our modern American evangelicalism? It's not. We emphasize the, the humility, the humanity, the love of Christ, and we should. But there is this side of him too, that he is not the friend of all people, irrespective of their sin and irrespective of their choices in life. Uh, that there is a place called hell and it's not just where people will end up that, that did not come to Christ, did not believe the gospel, but Christ actually created hell. 
And he's the one that will fill hell with the demons, with the devil, and with everyone that does not know him. And that's because he is the Holy One of God. Turning back to Mark, the demon also says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this is why the demon was so panicked when he met Christ. And this is why hell exists, is ultimately something that is morally polluted and unclean cannot have fellowship with what is holy. And Christ, because he's the son of God, he's more than just a holy one, like we read in the Psalms where believers are referred to as holy ones, he is the holy one of God. So his holiness is lethal to the sinful, that which is unclean to the spirit. And so this man who's possessed by a demon, he shrieks and he cries out, he identifies Christ, and he, it seems like a protest. I thought it wasn't time yet. What are you doing here? And what does Jesus say? Does he get out his, his cross and his beads and start reciting spells and, and doing all sorts of silly things, throwing holy water on the demon? There's no ritual. There's no incantation. There's no charms. He simply says, be quiet. That's actually a very strong word. It means shut your mouth. So this guy is shouting in the synagogue. Jesus says, shut your mouth and get out. That's all he says. What happens? The demon tries to resist the order and the command, but he fails. He is forced to submit to the authority of Christ. An unseen power has gone forth from the Lord and overwhelmed this evil spirit, and he is being forced to leave this man. He screams with a loud cry, and he convulses. So the demon puts up a, a short fight, but is completely unable to reckon with the power and the authority of Christ. It is like, I mean, the picture, the response of the man with the demon, it's like the response you would expect from a man who broke into uh, someone's house, but he broke into the wrong house, and the owner of that house has met him, and he grabs him by the neck and throws him through his window. I mean, the man would be screaming, crying out. I mean, that's, the, that's what the demon is, that's how he's responding here. There is this overwhelming power that is forcing him to leave this man. And so imagine that you were there and Jesus had just come, preached plainly to you about the way of salvation, about the ultimate meaning of life. And presented that in very black and white terms and all of a sudden this happens right after that and Jesus just speaks and this this man is completely overwhelmed and in his right mind the next second what would you conclude well the people were astonished they were amazed the second time that that word it's actually a different word but very similar to the word in verse 22 they were astonished at his teaching but they were amazed when they saw what he did here this is new i mean my whole life i've just heard opinions here's someone that actually claims to speak absolute truth that just proved it in front of my eyes 
that he actually has spiritual power that everything must submit to. And that's the lesson. We need to conclude from, from this, not just that Christ speaks truth, but that his words come with irresistible power and authority. And that what, whatever we may think of his commands now, one day we will submit to his commands whether we want to or not. With a word, God, through his son, spoke the universe into existence. With a word, he casts out demons from their victims. With a word, with just a word, he will slaughter his enemies when he returns. That's why Christ is pictured as having a sword coming out of his mouth. It's not a literal sword, but it's a figurative way of saying his word is so powerful that it is lethal, just a word that is enough to win a victory for him. And do you see how this should affect how you listen to his words? So we've, we've heard a lot here. We hear a lot in church. Many of us, we listen to sermons on our own. We study the Bible on our own. We have different Bible studies. We have problems and we go to other believers for help. We say, can you help me? But we, we don't always like what we hear. Uh, we don't always like what we hear. And so at the end of the day, we, we have to make a decision. We all have to make a decision. When, when I am convinced of a meaning in this book that is demanding something from me, and when that contradicts my desires or my intuition or my experience, what will I do? The disciples followed Jesus immediately and they became his friends. And so this is not just a cold demand to bow to a great high king. No, we're actually being called into fellowship with God to be his children, to be friends of Christ. He's even called our, our elder brother in a sense, but he's also our Lord. And when we hear his commands, we need to receive him with, we receive them with this attitude. And so which one are you? When you hear a command that is obviously calling you to change something specific in your life, is your heart bowed when you hear those words? Or is it, well, yeah, but, or there's hesitation, there's delay, there's argument. Uh, Christians can do this. Uh, real converted, born again believers can do this. We can be slow to obey the Lord. And that's why there's passages like this, that even though we're the friends of Christ, that we are the children of God, that we're saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, we need to have a healthy and weighty sense of Christ's authority in our life. Uh, and that authority is made, as, as the Apostle Paul said, for building you up. I mean, God exercises his authority for your good. It's not to your detriment. It's not to your injury. It's not for your suffering. Uh, his words come to you with authority in order to point you the direction to actually know true happiness. And so we must choose. What will you say when your long-cherished beliefs and desires are found to be in contradiction to the words of Christ? What will you do? 
This is, this is preparatory for a lot of us. Uh, it's preparatory for when we find ourselves in a place where um, we are maybe in sin. We're maybe caught in some sin and someone tries to help us and they just speak directly like Jesus would have spoken to them. Here's what I've seen and here's what the Lord is calling you to do. Right, what will be your response? Will it be a protest or humble submission to him and his authority? Our Father, we pray that you would give us a submissive spirit to the authority of Christ. We thank you that he does speak clearly to us in this book, uh, that we do not have to travel down an endless maze of error and tradition and speculation and puzzles in order to discover the, the way to eternal life. We re-acknowledge this morning that we are under the authority of Christ, that we ought to live according to his commands. We pray that you would speak to our conscience, each of us individually. Uh, we are all in different places, and perhaps some of us are here today that are convicted, we have been convicted at some time in the past regarding some habit or some relationship or some belief we have that does not harmonize with the word of Christ. We pray that you would give us and such people the ability to change the ability to trust you with the results of obeying your commands. Give us faith, a stronger faith, so that we will follow you even on difficult roads and paths that you call us down. Uh, we pray that you would be our shepherd and that you would lead us and that you would seek us when we go astray and use our brothers and sisters in Christ to seek us and pursue us and restore us. Uh, we pray that we would all be in joyful submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we believe and in how we live. And we pray in his name, amen.